I'm really excited to uh, welcome to the stage. Uh, we have a guest speaker. His name is John Whitaker. Uh, can you get up for John as he makes his way up here? John teaches uh, part-time at Boise Bible College, professor there, and uh, is also working on online content, uh, doing uh, unpacking uh, a commentary on the New Testament. And uh, we are just uh, honored and uh, just so thankful to have you here, John. So welcome. Good morning. Take it away. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> it's good to be with you. Justin uh, emailed me and asked, I said, I got a conflict on this date. Could you speak? And then he told me what the topics were. It's the passage out of the Sermon on the Mount about murder, adultery, and divorce. And I'm like, oh, I see what happened. You scheduled a conflict so you could tap out and bring somebody else in. <clears throat> All right, great. So here we are. We are uh, in Matthew chapter 5. You guys have been working through the Sermon on the Mount. And the reality is, is this uh, this section of scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, there's no more central section of scripture than this for you to read and pray through and absorb and meditate on than this whole uh, series of chapters that you're looking at this summer. So this is uh, really incredible stuff. And even though the topics we get to deal with today are a little bit heavy and a little bit challenging, it's really important because what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's, he's really painting his vision for what life in his kingdom looks like. What does it look like to be part of Jesus' kingdom? And that's what he's doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me ask you a question uh, just to get, uh, get us started. This is like a one-question, true-false test. So if you have test anxiety, blood pressure might be mounting. Uh, one question, true or false? Jesus is smart. Not a trick question. <clears throat> True or false? Jesus is smart. True. True. I would agree. I think that's the right answer. I think Jesus is smart. I think any room you walk into, doesn't matter where it's at, uh, with which people you're in, doesn't matter how many degrees they have, Jesus is the smartest person in any room. He knows more than anybody else. He's wiser than anybody else. Jesus is smart. And the reason that's important for us to, to, to realize, to believe, and to think about is because when Jesus tells us something, if he's smart, then that would mean he probably knows what he's talking about, right? And uh, it would mean that his instructions aren't just like arbitrary religious rules, so often when we read the Bible or we sit in a church service, we can, we can you know, kind of in, almost implicitly think that's what they are. These are arbitrary religious rules that I have to keep in order to make God happy so I can go to heaven when I die. But if Jesus is smart, they're more than that. They are instructions that are grounded in the way the universe is designed to function. They are instructions that, are, uh, that go with the grain of reality, that, that are in keeping with how you're designed to operate. Let me offer an illustration by way of analogy that I, I hope will help. Put this picture up on the screen if we can. Um, <clears throat> if I were to issue this, this command, thou shalt not use Hershey's syrup for oil in your automobile. Is that arbitrary? Or is that smart? It's smart. Because if you use Hershey's syrup for oil in your automobile, how is it going to go for you? 
not go very far. True? Right? Um, Thou shalt not use oil for, uh, or syrup for oil in your automobile. Thou shalt not use water for gasoline in your automobile. Right? This is smart. This isn't arbitrary. And when Jesus teaches us things, when he issues instructions to us, they're like that. Why is this not smart? Because your car isn't designed to run on Hershey's syrup in the crankcase. It's just that simple. Your car isn't designed to run with water in the fuel tank. It's not arbitrary. It's the way the car is designed to work. And there's a way you and I and every human being are designed to work. There's a way this world is designed to work. And when Jesus teaches us something, his teachings are in line with how the universe and you and me, how we're designed to function. And so his instructions, therefore, are incredibly smart and wise and good. And so we're going to pick up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And just to make sure we don't forget the context where we're at, uh, last week's message, the passage you looked at last week, ended in verse 20 by saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is going to show us then in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is what does it look like to have surpassing righteousness? In his kingdom, he wants to form people who who operate rightly, who function the way they're designed to function, who have a right relationship to God, to each other, to the world, to the way they're made to operate, surpassing righteousness. That's the context. And so what he begins to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, is he begins to give some examples of surpassing righteousness. Well, Jesus, what is surpassing righteousness? Well, Let's let's look at some examples. And what he will offer for us today are some reflections on two of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. And he's going to offer some reflections on two of them. Commandment number six and commandment number seven. So the first one, commandment number six, Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, Thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder. And... A follow-up to that, whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. This is commandment number six. Don't murder. Now, when I was in high school, I had a job at a bakery. And the baker and I were talking one day. He was in his mid-40s at the time, and he was trying to reassure me that he was a good person. And his approach to doing that illustrates how often we look at um, what it means to be a good person, and it really illustrates what Jesus is about to say in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. The baker said to me, I'm a good person. I pay my child support, and I've never murdered anybody. So often, that's the depth of our standard for what it means to be a good person. I've never murdered anybody. Have you ever murdered anybody? We're good people. But for Jesus, righteousness, uh, good human living, human flourishing, goes deeper than that. Look what he says, verse 22. But I say to you, so you've heard that it was said, 
you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, literally, raka, it was an Aramaic term of contempt, you jerk, you a-hole, you whatever it is, put it in there. Anyone who says that to his brother shall be answerable to the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, you idiot, right, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now how are we feeling about ourselves? I've never murdered anyone, but I have been angry. I have uttered terms of contempt towards people, you idiot, you jerk, right? Um, I've done that, and Jesus says, that's enough to make you answerable to the court, God's ultimate court. The reality is, is what Jesus' point he's making is, the principle that is embodied in that, that sixth commandment, you shall not murder, that principle was intended to help us think about what leads to murder, what leads to division in in families and in human relationships on the continuum of murder is anger and contempt Um, and most of us have been guilty of that as well when I was uh, before I became a Christian I became a Christian in high school when I was a young child I had a vicious and violent temper I would lose my temper on a regular basis and I would get very angry so much so that my sister, who's two years older than me, my sister used to swear. She would tell people this. He's going to grow up to be a murderer. Praise God in his grace. He rescued me. I'm not a murderer. I'm a preacher. Uh, But my sister could see the connection between anger and murder just like Jesus sees it here. There's a connection between the two. And so Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother or sister, whoever has contempt and speak words that are harsh and mean-spirited towards people, that is enough to make you guilty for the fires of hell. And so Jesus says to us, let's, let's address that. Let's not just say I'm good enough because I've never murdered. Let's address the heart of the issue. If you're going to have surpassing righteousness, you got to go beneath the surface and you got to go to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is anger and contempt. And so he says in verse 23 through 26, he gives two examples of a person who's ready to make peace, who's ready to say, I want peace to reign in my heart so that peace can reign in my relationships. And so he says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, Picturing in his context a a good Jew who's coming to worship God in the temple. So he's come to the house of worship, and he's come to worship. And and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. You remember there that you've wronged somebody, you've hurt somebody, you've called them raka, you've done something wrong, you've, in anger, you've wounded them. Jesus says, don't use your religion as an excuse to cover that up and say you're good enough because you haven't murdered them. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. Just push pause on your worship and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and worship God. 
Then come and present your offering. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, be so eager and so ready to make peace that when you recognize you've wounded somebody, hurt somebody, you're willing to make things right if at all possible, and you're not going to use your religious activity as a cover-up for your anger and your contempt. Let your heart be full of peace so that you can actually make peace with other people gives another example. He says, come to good terms with your accuser quickly while you are with him on the way to court so that your accuser will not hand you over the judge and the judge to the officer and you will not be thrown in prison. Just practical reality. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up your last quadrants or your last penny, a very small coin in Jesus' day. Jesus' point in both these illustrations is to, to be the kind of person who is eager and ready and willing to make things right and make amends and make peace if at all possible. Let peace govern your relationships with other people, not anger and not contempt. And really the bottom line for you and for me out of this first little chunk of the text today is if we believe Jesus is smart, and we all said yes, if we believe that, then let's agree with him that anger is not the right way to manage our relationships. But peace is. Peace of heart and reconciliation and kindness. Let's be the kind of people that say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. And I'm not going to excuse my anger. I'm not going to mask over my anger. I'm not going to you know, let myself get away with my anger. I'm going to take my anger seriously and say, you know what? I'll even, I'll even pause my worship with God to make things right with my brother or sister if I need to. Because anger and contempt are no way to do human relationships. And I think we know that, don't we? We don't like anger. Who likes it when someone cuts them down? Who likes it when someone yells at them, when someone makes fun of them, when someone ridicules them in anger, right? Who likes it? We know that anger is no way to do it. And Jesus is saying, so let's become a different kind of person. Now, that's the first, first bit of reflections on commandment number six. From there, he goes to commandment number seven, the very next one. And he says this in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's uh, commandment number seven of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we know what adultery is, is it? don't we? We know what adultery is. It's when someone has sex with someone other than their spouse. Adultery. We know that, right? But Jesus says it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. You could maybe avoid that specific behavior, but that doesn't mean you're pure and faithful like God made you to be. You're not, you could still uh, not be operating the way God designed you to operate. And so Jesus is going to give two examples of other ways to violate the seventh commandment beyond just uh, the specific behavior of adultery. And so he says in verse 28, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that every one of you who looks at a woman, this translation says with lust for her. That's not quite strong enough. It's a purpose statement in Greek. Everyone who looks at a woman in order to lust after her, in order to desire her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Here's another way you could violate the intent of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I've never had sex with anyone who wasn't my spouse. Have you lusted? Have you looked at another person with lust in your heart for them? Jesus says that's another way to break the seventh commandment. You're still impure and you're still unfaithful. And so Jesus says we need to take that, the heart of the issue. If we're going to be the kind of people that God created us to be, we've got to get to the heart of the issue. And if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to take even that kind of lust with deadly seriousness. Look what he says in verse 29 and 30. He says, so in view of that, since that is a problem as well, that's the heart of the issue, he says, take it this seriously. Now, if your right eye is causing you to sin, what should you do? Tear it out. Throw it away. Because it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's pretty serious. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus' point is, is... Uh, you have to take this issue of the desires of your heart so seriously that you're willing to do whatever it takes to deal with it. Is Jesus literally telling you to pluck out your eye and throw it away or cut off your hand and throw it away? Is he telling you literally to do that? This is what's called hyperbole. English class, right? Hyperbole, what does he mean? He means you do whatever it takes to deal with the sinful desire in your heart, whatever it takes to deal with the sinful desire in your heart so that you don't commit adultery even simply by lusting. So you do what you've got to do. You take it seriously. You put whatever parameters you've got to put in place. Uh, you have whatever partnerships and friendships you need in order to make sure that uh, they can hold you accountable. You put whatever software you need to put on your, your computer or your phone, right? You do whatever you need to do because it is serious. Why is it serious? Because just like a car is not designed to run on Hershey's syrup, you're not designed to run on sexual lust and rampant sexual desire. Again, we know this. We know this. Um, because we know about rape. We know about sexual harassment. We know right, when sexual desire is out of control, it destroys human people and human relationships. We, we know this is true. We see the evidence all around it. Now, like, if we just took Jesus seriously at this, guess what? There wouldn't be uh, unwed pregnancies. There wouldn't be sexual harassment. There wouldn't be rape. And all these things are bad for human flourishing. So we're going to take it seriously because Jesus is smart. And what he says is wise and good and right. So we're going to take it seriously. So one way we could break the seventh commandment besides the physical act of adultery is by lusting after people, other people being consumed with sexual desire. But there's another way we could do that. So he says in verse 31, now it was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. So here's another way, it'll be clear in just a second, that this is just another example of how you could be unfaithful to your spouse. 
You could be unfaithful to your spouse by physically committing adultery. You could be unfaithful to your spouse by trading him in for a newer model, sending him or her away. Now, the reason here it's stated in terms of uh, the, the man doing it is because in Jesus' culture, among the Jews of the first century, only the man had the right to divorce his wife. So she, she couldn't initiate divorce. Only he could. And that's why it's stated the way it is. In our culture, it's an equal opportunity venture. Either man or woman can do it. But the point in context is, is that this is another way of being unfaithful to your marriage vows. Now, the reality is, in the church, there's oftentimes a lot of shame around divorce. At least there has been historically. I was preaching on this very passage a number of years ago at a different church, and I wanted to get some help before I preached the sermon from people in the congregation who had been divorced. I wanted their input to help me write the sermon. And um, there was one gal who I wanted to invite to be part of that little group to talk with me about that, and so I approached her um, in the lobby. No one else was around. It was just her and I in the lobby the service was going on. Everyone was sitting down in here. She was out there. No other person. So I walked up to her, and I, and I, I asked her, hey, um, I know you've been divorced. This was her immediate response. I didn't even finish my sentence. That was the start of my sentence. Um, her immediate response was this, to hang her head, close her eyes, and say, I know. Am I going to hell? Because we've put so much shame around this. I said, look at me. I said, I want you to help me write my sermon. <laughs> oh. I said, no, you're not going to hell. Um, and so this is a sensitive subject. And some of you sitting in here uh, may have had your own experiences with divorce. And I want to make sure you know uh, I realize the sensitivity of this subject. My earliest childhood memories, and I, my dad walked out on the family. I was three and a half years old. He handed my mom, my six-month-old little baby brother, grabbed his white Navy duffel bag, flung it over his shoulder, walked out. It's was three and a half, and I still remember it because it's painful, it's harmful. And Jesus isn't talking about this because he wants to heap shame on you. Jesus is talking about this because he doesn't want men and women and little boys and little girls to have to go through it. Because it's hard for us, right? Because it's not the way we're designed to function. So this is what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice the repetition of commit adultery at, in verse 32. Why? Because Jesus is tying it to the seventh commandment. He's tying and saying, look, the seventh commandment says thou shalt not commit adultery, but there's more to it. There's more to purity and there's more to faithfulness than just avoiding the physical act of adultery. You can be unfaithful to your marriage vows by committing adultery. And this was a raging debate in Jesus' day. 
There were actually two dominant schools of thought among the Jews. There was the super kind of liberal progressive view and there was the more conservative view in Jesus' day. The liberal progressive view was, guess what? A man can uh, divorce his wife, trade her in for a different model for any reason at all. There literally was a, a rabbinic school of thought that said, she burns the toast and you don't like it, trade her in. If she gets old and wrinkly and you don't like it, trade her in. For whatever reason you want, trade her in. Um, and then there's the more conservative that, that said, no, that's not what Deuteronomy 24.1 is talking about. Uh, the only legitimate reason is sexual infidelity. And so you had these two schools of thought. This will actually come up again in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 19, and he'll, he'll deal with it again there, and he'll more specifically enter into their debate. But here he's bringing it up just to illustrate that, look, there's more to faithfulness than not having an affair, than not committing adultery. The faithfulness that is willing and able to stick with somebody throughout their entire life, like for the whole marriage, that's faithful. That's faithful. And again, we said at the outset that we all believe Jesus is smart, right? And that's because Jesus knows how God created marriage to function. That when a man and a woman are brought together in Genesis chapter two and the first marriage ensues, that this was, they, they became one flesh like God. God is three and God is one. Unity and difference, three in one. And when a man and a woman come together in marriage, this is two in one and they become one. And you, you don't just rip that apart in an easy sort of way. And so when I sat with that group of people that I gathered at this previous church and had them help me write my sermon on marriage and divorce, every single one of them, every single one of them talked about how hard it was, how difficult it was, how painful it was. One specific gal said uh, that um, I would never wish it on anyone even though in my case it was absolutely necessary for my safety and my kids' safety, I would never wish it on anyone. Another guy said, um, it, it's worse than death. Because with death, you can grieve it and you can go on, but somehow this still sticks around. And there's shame and there's guilt associated with it, like somehow I failed. Right? Jesus knows this. And because he's wise and good and smart, he wants to say, no, let's, let's not put Hershey's syrup in where the oil's supposed to go. This is not the way you're designed to function. And the reality is we know it too. We know it too. Now we know that, that anger, we know that adultery and misuse of sex, and we know that divorce, we know that the things Jesus talked about in this text, we know that these things aren't good for human flourishing, right? We know that uh, misuse of anger, misuse of sex, divorce, we know how much damage that does to human relationships. We know how much damage that does uh, to uh, families and to children and to uh, neighborhoods and to society. We know that. And what Jesus is offering us here is wisdom, deep-rooted wisdom that says, listen to me and guess what? Life will work right for you. It'll go a whole lot better for you. That's what he's offering us. And the good news is this. 
Jesus, Jesus doesn't operate the way religion operates. Religion says to people, look, get your act cleaned up enough that maybe you can be good enough for me. That's the way religion talks. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus already said, blessed are you. And blessed are, right? The Beatitudes, the whole point of the Beatitudes is Jesus throwing the doors of his kingdom wide open. He's looking at a crowd of people, people who have been uh, victims of misuse of anger, victims of misuse of sex, maybe victims of divorce. He's looking at a crowd of people who have been, uh, maybe they've been the ones that have perpetuated the problem. They're the ones that have misused anger. They're the ones that have misused sex. They're the ones that have just cast their spouse aside. He's looking at a crowd, in other words, like a lot of us. And he said, welcome. Welcome into my kingdom. The door is wide into my kingdom. Come on in. Whatever you've been through and whatever you've done, come on in. And together, let's learn a new way of being human. Let's learn a new way of doing life. You see, if you'll give Jesus a chance, he'll make you a person of peace, a person of purity, a person of faithfulness. If you'll trust Jesus, that he really knows what he's talking about, that he really is smart, and, that, and, and then you'll cooperate with him, he'll change you from the inside out, from, from your heart to the outside, so that you can be a person who can live with another person for a lifetime. You can be the kind of person who doesn't excuse anger when it gets misused in you and you're increasingly becoming more peaceful and patient. He'll make you the kind of person who's pure of heart so that you don't objectify other people and look at them merely for, as instruments and objects for your own pleasure. He'll give Jesus a chance. He'll make you a person of peace, purity, and faithfulness. That's the invitation of this text. That Jesus... He's not waiting for you to get your act all cleaned up. He's saying, come to me, come to me. And together, let's learn what it means to be human again. And he's offering that to each one of us. And in a couple minutes, we're gonna take communion. And communion is an opportunity to celebrate that, right? To celebrate that Jesus isn't just smart, but he's good. He's good, and he welcomes broken people who have misused anger and, and attacked other people. He welcomes people who have, um, maybe they didn't have an affair, maybe they did, but certainly they maybe have lusted, right? He, he welcomes people who have experienced the pain and the shame of divorce. He says, come to me, come to me, and let's, let's become something more and different and deeper. That's what this text offers to you and to I. And if we took it seriously, it would change all our relationships. All our relationships with our husband or our wife, with our kids and our home. Right? Can you imagine a home where there wasn't uh, anger and that wasn't used regularly? Like it would change all that. It would change our relationship with our neighbors and in our neighborhood, with our coworkers, with our extended family. It would change all our relationships if we really took Jesus' words and said, no, you're smart. I'm gonna go your way. I'm going to do it your way. And Jesus says, great, let's do it together.